Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, and this morning we'll be in verses 7 to 11 again. We really focused pretty much all of our time last week on this first command in verse 7, and so now we're going to consider the, the whole rest of, of the passage together this morning, and, and what Peter has to say to us as believers, as exiles and strangers in foreign land. How are we to live in light of the end that is near? And how are we to walk and carry out the gospel in our own lives? We don't ever, we don't ever depart from the gospel. We don't move beyond the gospel, but we live in accordance with the gospel, and this is one of the things that we see Peter teaching the church here, how we are to live together. And so again, our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll read together beginning in verse 7 down to 11. The Apostle Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as we have just read here, you are indeed the one to whom all glory and dominion belongs forever and ever. And as the supreme, as the sovereign over all, you have issued decrees, you have given commands, you have given all the world and and especially your people instructions on how we ourselves are to live as your blood-bought people and as citizens of your kingdom. You warn us that we will have affliction, we will have trouble in this life, but that that is no reason to live contrary to the gospel, but that all the more we should persevere. And so, Lord, I pray for us all this morning that as we even just saying that you would speak to us, that as the word goes forth, it would go forth as Peter says it ought as the very oracles of God that we would hear from You in Your Word. And that by Your Spirit, You would illuminate Your Word for us and speak to our very hearts. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago this morning, we are looking again at this passage where Peter instructing the church about how we are to live, particularly in light of the fact that we are living in the last days, which as we saw last week is a time that is, among other things, characterized by many difficulties, many trials, many 
afflictions as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that in this passage, there are essentially four directives that Peter gives to believers in their various churches, including our own. And he begins with the charge that we are to be a people of serious prayer. We are to understand the times that we live in with all of its challenges and temptations. We are to think soberly about them. and We are to be watchful and alert in and through prayer. It is through prayer that with the help of the Spirit of God, we can be vigilant against sin and temptation. We saw that very specifically, that, that, that Jesus was instructing and teaching and training His disciples to watch and pray that they may not enter into temptation. So one of the primary ways that we battle against sin is through the means of prayer. It is through prayer also that we can ask for the supplies of God's strength to keep us pure and holy and blameless before Him. And it is even through prayer that the church can become more united together as we all together pursue the will of God and and desire the very same things and, and, and seek His blessings upon this church, upon our labors, upon our very lives and, and the lives of our brothers. This week, as we look at this passage again, we're going to consider the other three directives that Peter goes on to give us. In addition to being a people of serious prayer, How are we also to live together in light of living in the end times? What does the Gospel of Christ that we have believed call us to? The first directive that we'll consider together this morning is the charge to earnestly love one another. We are to love one another earnestly. Peter says, if you look with me there, beginning in verse 8, again he says, above all, keep loving one another or have love for one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't think that if Peter was ranking commands from most important to least important, that that those that fall in the least or lesser important category would mean that those are the commands that are kind of optional. We we don't necessarily have to uh, obey them. Uh, That's not what he would mean if he was ranking any of these. But there is a very real sense in which Some commands provide the foundation upon which everything else is built. And that's really very much the case here. Love is ranked, if you will, above all else. It is primary. It is what shapes everything else. Peter's going to go on and say that we must show hospitality to one another without grumbling and that we must serve one another. And really, both of these commands are are just expressions and and particular examples of the command to love one another. There will be no hospitality if there is no love. There will be no serving one another if love is not present. And so we find here Peter placing a particular importance on this command in verse 8. Above all, he says, before everything else, most importantly, you must love one another earnestly. Now, I think we all know, if we have any familiarity with our surrounding culture, that The idea of love has become quite confused 
and in many ways even perverted in our day. So we need to think carefully about what it means to love one another, not just bring assumptions or whatever values or ideas we we just assume may be there, but to think carefully about what this requires, or at least some of the things that it requires. And some of the qualities of this love that we are called to are found in what follows. For one thing, Peter says here that this is to be an earnest love. And here he's not so much referring to the idea of having some intensity of feelings or emotions. That's all good and fine, and affections for one another are wonderful, especially when they are are strong and and genuine. But, But as we all know, those affections can be affected. They can be affected by external things. They can be affected by our own sin, and they can ebb and flow. The idea here is that our love, as it is earnest, must be constant. It is a persistent kind of love. It is steadfast. It is enduring. Even, and perhaps most importantly, it is enduring when there has been some great offense committed against you. Or perhaps even a multiplicity of small offenses. That it continues. It is constant. In other words, it's one thing to to love others because you have some family relationship with them or friendship with them. It's one thing to love others who have similar interests and compatible personalities with your own. But even unbelievers do this. right? That requires no special work of grace. That that requires no work of the Spirit. No regeneration. No new birth. The Gentiles love one another in this very way. You can do this in the flesh. But when someone sins against you, will your love for them remain constant? Will it endure even through that offense? Or will you just write them off right? and, and, and decide, as, as so many people so often do, I'm just going to, I still love them, but I'm going to love them from a distance. I don't want anything to do with them anymore, but I still love them. Right? Is that going to be what we, what we resort to? You will love the people of God as long as they are serving your own interests whether that be spiritual or emotional, financial, intellectual, or anything else. This, of course, is not the kind of love that Peter is calling believers to. It's a worldly love. That is a sinful, distorted kind of love. It's a a selfish love. It's the very opposite of the kind of love that we are called to have. This love is defined here by earnestness and constancy and forbearance. And of course, this is made even more clear by the following statement that Peter makes here. He says, love one another earnestly, constantly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The assumption, of course, is that you will be sinned against. People will offend you. They will perhaps even sin against you in grievous ways. That is the assumption. It's a given. And yet, your love will continue for the one who has sinned against you. Now, here in the text, Peter is alluding to the second half of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. And If you look at Proverbs 10, verse 12, in that text, in that verse, we have a a contrast. The text says, in in the beginning of verse 12, Proverbs 10, 12, it says, hatred stirs up strife, and then the contrast, but love covers all offenses. 
So, so the contrast helps us to understand what it means here, particularly to cover offenses. On the one hand, the person who is full of hate or who at a minimum is displaying hateful behavior is a person that Solomon says stirs up strife. They keep an eye out for the faults and the sins of others. And and as soon as they see somebody stumble in some way, what do they do? They, They publish it. They make it known to everyone. It becomes the topic of gossip. It spreads like gangrene and they they bring shame to the person who has sinned. They're eager to create conflicts and, and oftentimes even under the guise of being a close friend. Indeed, in, in the verse before this, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11, Solomon says there that the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The wicked have wicked intentions within their hearts. Violent intentions. They have ungodly motives to exalt themselves as others fall. They act as friends hypocritically and then when they see faults of some kind, they publicize them just to bring disrepute to others. The hateful person is, in a very sense, a devilish person. He's the kind of person who is just always aiming to launch accusations, whether they be valid or not. They're on the hunt to accuse the brothers. They're not interested in helping a brother or sister in Christ walk with Christ and grow in holiness. They're not interested in the godliness of repentance. They simply criticize as an unholy means of concealing their own sins and the ungodliness that is within them. By contrast, however, the person whose love covers all offenses, this is not someone who is wickedly hiding sins. The idea isn't to just sort of cover up sins so that others can save face. The point is that this person, their disposition is that they are eager to reconcile. They are eager to have these these broken, sinned-against relationships restored. Not only do they overlook many faults, but, but even when they have been grievously sinned against, their desire is not that they can exact revenge. Their desire is that they can win their brother back. They care about his soul. They care about his heart. His walk with Christ. Listen to what James says, alluding to this very same proverb in James chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. James writes there, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, they're sinning. They're beginning to depart from the gospel, which is not only manifesting itself in the things that they believe and say, but it's It's revealing itself in their very actions. If if anyone among you begins to wander from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is what the loving person wants to do. They want to save souls. They want to bring back the wandering sinner. They're not out for blood. They are rather the very reflection of Christ Himself and reflecting the heart of God. In Matthew chapter 18, 
in response to an argument that some of Jesus' disciples were having with one another about which one of them would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're wanting this position of prominence. Which one of us will be greatest? Jesus took a little child and, and He placed the child in their midst to serve as an example of who the least in the kingdom is. And and to serve as an example of the heart of God towards the least in the kingdom. And in the context of addressing this matter and this this argument, he he tells the story, the, the parable of the lost sheep. He says in verses 12 to 13 in Matthew 18, he says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them, one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? The one who wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. This this one wandering sheep. He rejoices over this sheep more than over the 99 that never went astray. And then he adds at the end, he says, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little should perish. That's the heart of God for sinners. He's going to pursue them. Bring them back into the fold. Now, literally, of course, he's speaking about the Father's heart towards children who are in front of Him. But again, this child also represents the least in the kingdom of heaven. The disciple of Christ who will not have this position of authority that Jesus' first disciples were all vying for And again, the disciple who's wandering from the fold. And so he's really speaking. Jesus is really speaking about your your average disciple. An average disciple who can stumble and fall and sin and wander. And who needs a good shepherd. And when this disciple begins to wander off, the heart of the Father is that He will go after them. Begin to bring them back. And rejoice over His return. And this, it's interesting, this, this very parable is what then naturally leads to Jesus speaking about the very first step in what we call church discipline. One Christian has been sinned against by another. And, and what is he to do? Does he cut him off? Somebody sins against you, you cut them off? You write them off? They're an unbeliever. I don't want anything to do with them anymore. Does he seek revenge? Does he want to shame the offender? What what is his heart? Well, Jesus addresses this in, in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. You pursue him on an individual basis. There's no need to publicize it. You don't need to stir up strife and bring unnecessary shame to this person. And what is the goal in this very confrontation? What is your heart's disposition and desire? Well, it's supposed to be like the Father's. Jesus says, if He listens to you, He hears your words and and accepts them, He says, you have gained your brother. You've won him. You got him back. You gained him. He was wandering. He was sinning. He was was offending you. And you went after him. and Won him back. That's what biblical love does. It, It imitates the love of the Father towards sinners. It pursues them and is eager and desirous to reconcile 
when those relationships have been harmed. Love will be willing to bear all kinds of personal shame, personal offenses in the pursuit of reconciliation and forgiveness and a godly walk with Christ. It will endure all manners of offenses because it is a reflection of what Christ has done on our behalf. How many times, brothers and sisters, have you sinned against God? How many times have you brought shame not only to yourself, but to the very name of God as a believer? And does He cast you off? Oh, he makes a promise to you. You are his sheep. He will go after you. He will keep you. And no one will be able to snatch you from his hand. All of your offenses have been covered by the blood of Christ. He bore your sins in his flesh on the cross. That, friends, that, that's the kind of love that Peter calls us to. If we ever imitate and, and learn to pray as the Lord Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, what, what is a part of the prayer? Forgive us, O God. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Friends, if we are unwilling to do this, if we are unwilling to bear with the sins of others and to bear perhaps even reproach to our own names in the pursuit of reconciliation, if we are unwilling to forgive those trespasses that have been committed against us, We should expect no forgiveness from God. He calls us to imitate that very love and heart towards sinners. And this is the kind of love that Peter calls us to have. This constant, earnest, bearing and covering of a multitude of sin kind of love. Now, A second directive that he gives flows out of the first one. It's an expression of the first. And it's the call to show hospitality. Verse 9, Peter says there, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, you can't always get the meaning of words just by looking at the form of words or the history of how words have developed what's called their etymology. Sometimes, actually, that that can get you in a lot of trouble. And sometimes preachers get in a lot of trouble for doing that very thing. But in this case, the form of the original word for showing hospitality really provides a good illustration for what it means. The form of this word communicates the idea of loving strangers. Loving strangers, which doesn't mean you don't, you don't know who they are at all. You don't have any idea. It's just a random person that you've, you've come across. But, but it means specifically that they're outside of your own household. right? They're strangers with respect to your house. And so to be hospitable means that you bring others who are outside of your family into your very own home. This definition of hospitality is made very clear by what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 of Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews gives the same command that Peter gives here. He says in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Love is first. Love is everything else flows from. Let brotherly love continue And then he follows it with the same call to show hospitality. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to 
strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Here, of course, he's referring to the stories of Abraham and Lot welcoming angels who they believed at least for a time just to be men into their home. And the point is not that you may you know, end up welcoming an angel into your home, right? It's not as if we're supposed to be looking around and wondering if the people who just came in happened to be an angel from, from on high. The point is that Abraham and Lot and, and, and those who have followed in their example receive blessings through their hospitality. Lot was rescued. That was, a, that was a part of, even though Lot had many of his flaws, many errors he committed, many sins he committed, that hospitality he showed was evidence of his, of his righteousness. And one of the reasons why God rescues him from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They received a blessing. And the same will be the case for you. What is especially clear here is that showing hospitality involves the use of your home to welcome outsiders in. For the early church, some of these Christians, of course, that Peter was writing to, would have had to have used their homes for the church to gather in. They didn't have the option of going to, to build a, a separate meeting place. That could land them in jail or or even dead. So what did they have to do? The the church was very much underground. They would use their homes. You have to open your homes up to the body of Christ. Others would have had to to house traveling missionaries as they were going about their work and needed a place to stay for a period of time before they moved on to the next city. This This was one way hospitality was shown and was indeed very necessary at the time. And this would, of course, require a sacrifice on their part. It would require an inconvenience of some kind. And because of that, it could easily lead them to to grumble and and complain. I know it's my obligation, i got to... I've got the only place that the church can meet in, so I guess everybody can, can come on in. You know, that, that's grumbling. There's no desire to do that. But Peter tells them, you, you do this. You show hospitality without grumbling. And for us, friends, th- this command is, is really just as relevant today. We may not have to hold church in somebody's home. And, and now that we're able to build our own meeting spaces, much discipleship can take place here. But that doesn't change the fact that Peter says we are to show hospitality to one another, which is the church, the people of God. Our homes are are also to be a place where Christian discipleship and fellowship takes place. We're not to imbibe the hyper-individualism of today and act as if our homes are just a private, secluded cave where we can disappear by ourselves and just get away from the world and from everyone else. Our, Our doors should be open. Our invites should be extended. We see many in the early church were were living as if, Acts chapter 2, verse 44, as if they had all things in common. And yet many in the modern church live as if they have absolutely nothing in common. That they share nothing. That they fellowship together. Hardly ever. And friends, this ought not to be so. If you are if you're unwilling to show hospitality and to have your brothers and sisters in Christ into your home, I think the real question is, what's going on with your heart? Why is that? The inconveniences of buying extra groceries, inconveniences of having to cook more food or doing some rearranging and and cleaning. These are all just that. They're they're inconveniences. 
And the essence of showing hospitality is to inconvenience yourself for the sake of others and to do so without grumbling. But if things like this or or other inconveniences are preventing you from being hospitable, then truly it is a question of the heart. What's going on? If such is the case, if there is a a heart, a a sin issue there, then, then friends, truly it is really just imperative that you confess that and repent from it and turn from it and change from it in obedience to Christ. You don't have to have a, you know, a walk of shame and put dust and ashes on yourself before everyone, but, but you recognize this is a heart issue. The Word of God calls me to be hospitable, and so now I'm going to obey. This leads us lastly to the third directive in our passage, which is a call to serve one another. Peter says in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In verse 11, Peter's going to speak about two types of gifts that people may have, but before looking at those, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that these gifts are not to be used for selfish gain. They are not intended to draw attention to ourselves, but they are rather to be used to serve the body and to bring glory to God. They are gifts that we receive from the Lord. They are measures of His Spirit that is given to His people to build up the body. And using these gifts for that very purpose, to serve one another, is how we are to be good stewards of these gifts. And so having said that, in verse 11, Peter goes on to describe the two general categories of gifts. There are speaking gifts, he calls them, and there are specifically serving gifts. We might say there are gifts of the Word, And there are gifts of deeds. Now, in in other places in the New Testament, like Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we can find more detailed lists of various kinds of gifts that people in the body of Christ have. Although, even when you read those lists, it must always be said that those are never exhaustive. An exhaustive list of all of the varied gifts and graces that the Lord has given to the church. But some of these gifts would include things like acts of mercy, generosity, contributions, helping, administrating. These would obviously fall under Peter's broad category here of serving, deed-oriented gifts. And then there are gifts of teaching and preaching, exhorting and And particularly for the early church, gifts of prophecy, a word gift, and gifts of speaking in various languages, prophetic words. These would be part of the category of speaking gifts. And Peter doesn't intend for us to look at these categories and look at all of these different kinds of gifts and take a spiritual gift survey or search deep within to figure out which particular gifts we have. The point is not to tire ourselves out with vain introspection and then inform the rest of the body that this is the particular gift that I have and and now you must allow me to use it. We no more search within to discover these gifts than we search within to discover the gift of faith. which we we all have, and which itself is a gift from God. Now, just just like it is the case when we believe in Christ, we do so because we find Him to be utterly trustworthy and utterly beautiful and other worthy of our lives. And and this is now a natural part of who we are 
by virtue of the work of God within us. Just as it, it's now become just a part of who we are that we, we believe in Christ. We recognize that that's a gift of the Lord. So also is it the case with these various gifts, these, these ways that we are inclined to serve the body. Men who preach and teach and have those particular gifts, if they are biblically qualified to do so, they desire to do so. They want to preach. They want to teach. There are no doubt, of course, many pretenders who simply want to turn the pulpit into a platform for their own glory and their own ambitions. But again, for those who are biblically qualified, that's what they want to do. They want to serve the body of Christ by studying the Word of God and then teaching it to the people of God. And similarly, there are some people who have an extraordinary desire to serve the body through their contributions of generosity. We're all, no doubt, called to, to do this very thing, to be generous, but there are, there are certainly people who have an extreme measure of, of this desire, of this, this gift. They're always looking for ways to contribute, ministries to support, missionaries to provide for. I was thinking even about here, about Mrs. Beth, one of our older members here. She hadn't been able to be here for, for some time because of various health issues, but she was always jumping at the pit to, to contribute to the cause of missions. As soon as we began developing a partnership she contribute to this very work. It's just in her blood, and that's how she serves the body of Christ. That hunger, that passion to serve the body in a very particular way, that is truly a gift from the Lord. And it's the kind of gift that when others in the body see it, it stirs us up to even greater Obedience. The, the, the abundant measure of giftedness that others have, the displays of godliness in particular ways, stirs us up to pursue that very thing in an even greater way. Now, Peter says of these kinds of gifts that, that we are to glorify God in and through them. If we have a speaking gift, we glorify God by speaking as if we were speaking the very oracles of God, he says. Do you know what that means? The, the oracles of God? That, that, is, that is the very same phrase that you find used all throughout the Old Testament to speak of the prophetic Word of God. What Isaiah preached. What Habakkuk preached. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 begins, it says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, this authoritative from on high word of God, that is the oracles of God. And Peter's not saying here that everyone who preaches and teaches is, is prophesying. But what he is saying, what he is saying, friends, is that it's at least pretty close there's a lot of overlap there. Preaching the Word of God is a matter of taking the Word of God and studying the Word of God and rightly understanding and handling the Word of God and then declaring it to others. And insofar as a preacher does this very task and preaches the Word of God accurately, that Word is coming with the very authority of God Himself. To put it even more bluntly, if on the basis of the Word of God, the church is called to love one another, and the church refuses and says, no, 
that's too much. That, that's too great a burden. That's too high a calling. I, I have no desire to do that. We're going to listen to this Word, but we're not going to obey it. The church, in that case, would not be disobeying the preacher. The church would be disobeying God Himself. That's how much God weds His Word to the proclamation of it. And so the preacher, for his part, must take his task of preaching the Word with an eternal seriousness. He is not playing around with happy-go-lucky speeches that you can just take as you will. He is to speak as if He is delivering the very oracles of God. And I suspect, I suspect, friends, that if more preachers understood that very responsibility that they by definition have as preachers of the Word of God, much of the silliness that is out there, much of the trivialities, much of the theological bankruptcy that comes from so many pulpits would be gone because you would recognize that you will be held accountable for every word you say because you are speaking as if speaking the oracles of God and speaking in my name. The church would then be in a much better and stronger and more mature and more holy place as a whole. Now, as we saw a moment ago, Peter doesn't just address here speaking gifts, but he also addresses these gifts of serving. And those who have these kinds of gifts to serve the body, glorify God by serving, not in their own strength, but by the strength, Peter says, that God supplies. Like the gift itself, the strength to carry it out is also supplied by God. And of course, the question that probably naturally arises is, how does this work? How do we serve such that we are relying on the strength of God and not relying on our own flesh. Well, I, I want you to just consider for a moment the order of Peter's instructions in this very passage for a service-oriented gift like showing hospitality. How do I show hospitality in God's strength so as to avoid grumbling and bringing disrepute to the name of Christ. Well, we can start first of all in verse 7. We pray. We pray. Lord, I know that You have called me as Your servant to show hospitality to the body of Christ. You've called me to display in my own life the very same kind of hospitality that Christ gave to me when as a stranger He brought me into His fold. He brought me into His own house. And Moreover, then we move to verse 8. If you are a believer, you can say, I love the body. I love the body. I love the people of God and the church is the bride of Christ and it is this body you have placed me in that I might serve them and so reflect how Christ became a servant for me and ransomed me from my sins. And then verse 9, help me, O God, in the power of your grace, help me to be hospitable to your people. So that Christ, through this simple act, may be glorified. We begin all of our serving with prayer. Motivated by a heart that is changed by the Gospel. 
and a heart that loves the people of God. And then we ask God for His strength to carry out His good will. And then what? Well, then you get busy. And you work. And you do. You obey. You act. You make all your preparations to be hospitable and to love God's people well. And you work and you obey the command knowing that it is God Himself who is working within you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. You work in the strength that He supplies. And as the church obeys the commands as we pray together, love one another, and show hospitality to one another, and serve one another, as this takes place within individual churches, the church grows. It matures. It grows up together into Christ. It's strengthened. And it's prepared to endure whatever afflictions may come its way and to endure them together for the sake of the Gospel. It is these very simple tasks, friends, that the Lord calls us to reflect the Gospel here. And He does so to prepare us for the times that we are promised will come where afflictions come to us either as individuals or as a body, and because we are strengthened together in Christ, we can endure to the glory of God. Amen? Let's go to the Lord and ask the blessings on His Word. Well, Father, as we see here, Peter gives the church a very simple task, very simple instructions, things that they are to do as they live as sojourners in the midst of a foreign land and as they are very presently facing various kinds of persecutions. And these tasks that he gives them are indeed very simple, but because of our sin are hard to carry out, and impossible to carry out in the flesh. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church that the simplicity that we find here would be embraced, and that in our pursuit of holiness, we would first begin with prayer together, and then out of the overflow of love for God and love for one another, we would serve one another and so build up the body. And we ask that your grace would be poured out as we obey your very word. We pray this in Jesus' name.